Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we've discovered, those first three verses constitute the prologue of the book. But today we move on and we move into John's introduction of himself. He introduces us to his audience, his primary audience. He introduces us to his God and also the subject of his writing, which we've also discovered is the Lord Jesus. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 today. Revelation 1, 4 through 8. By the way, if you're new to the Mission Church, we have note guides that you can pick up at both the uh, west and east entrances if you would like. Uh, We send them out also on Saturday afternoon via email, so if you'd like to just get it that way so you can download it, you just need to give us your email address and we'll make sure that that comes to you. But, and then also when you get here, there's a QR code that shows up around the place and you can just uh, take your phone and hit that and that note guide will come to your phone or your uh, tablet, whatever you have there. So Revelation chapter one, beginning with verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Father, as is always the case, we need your Holy Spirit to empower the communication of this day. And I feel that need more than I have felt it in a long time today, and I ask for it. And I pray for all who will be taking in this word today that you would empower their ability to hear, to understand, to grasp, and to see the next step that you have for them, whether that next step would be a step of repentance and faith, bringing them into the family and the kingdom of God, or whether that next step is some step of faith and obedience as one of your servants or one of your children. Whatever it may be, may your spirit help us, each one of us, to receive what we we need and to take the steps that you are calling us to and as these things transpire we'll give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus name amen well last week we discovered the identity of the man who wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ and his name is John he was a disciple of Jesus part of the inner circle with uh, James and Peter. He is the one that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to as he was hanging there on the cross, suffering for our sins. He is the author of the gospel that bears his name and three letters that he wrote, simply titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It is this John who, in verse 4 of this revelation, identifies his primary audience at the time, and that was the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, we're going to be studying those churches more in depth in a few weeks, 
But today he simply lets us know this is who I'm writing to. And as I looked at that, I just simply asked myself the question, why would he trouble himself to write to those specific churches? And even though verse 11 today is not part of our message, it gives us the answer. Uh, He wrote to these churches because in verse 11 we discover that Jesus, the risen Jesus, personally instructed John to put this revelation in writing, these things that he would encounter, and that he was to send this revelation to those churches. You can't get any more plain than that. And we discover there in verse 11 uh, the location of these churches. One was in the city of Ephesus, another in Smyrna, one in Pergamos, another in Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And all of these cities lie within the boundaries of what we today know of as Turkey. Because John is writing to these churches at the direction of the Lord... He makes it clear to these churches that um, this communication is not just from him. Certainly he is writing it, but it is also from the triune God whom he knows and whom he represents. And I want us to break that down and look at it this morning. There in verse 4 you find John saying, this is from the triune God, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now all of those descriptors, who is, who was, and who is to come, apply to the fullness of the Trinity. This would be true of the Father, it is true of the Son, it is true of the Spirit. Uh, But in this particular context, uh, it is really pointing to God the Father. He's the one in that particular context who is in view. He is the eternal one. Now, Exodus chapter 3, I think, gives us some some good things to take note of as it relates to this issue of the Father and his eternality. If we were to go to Exodus chapter 3 and study it, we would find God introducing himself to Moses through the burning bush. And if you remember that story, you remember that when Moses asked Who am I to say sent me to you? Because God was going to send him to Israel, right? And to Egypt to, to demand that Pharaoh let his people go. And he said, who am I to tell them has sent me? And God's response was, tell them I am sent you. I am. Now, on this screen, uh, that term, I am, if you look at the top, That's what it looks like in Hebrew. And when you take that Hebrew uh, word and you transliterate it into English, you get what we have on the second line, simply Y-H-W-H. You see, Hebrew has no vowels, only consonants. And so that's why it comes out that way. When you add in the vowels for, for English people, Uh, you come uh, to the word Yahweh. And this is God's covenant name. The covenant name that God revealed to his people, Israel. And Yahweh, or I am, in this context, means self-existent one. That's the way God identified himself to Moses. I am the self-existent existent one and I want you to really take a moment to let that kind of soak in I am who can say that who can say honestly say I am without adding anything else to it none of you in this room can do that I cannot do that. For example, I can say I am because I am. But I have to add to that I am because of Tom and Nancy Rose. If it weren't for Tom and Nancy Rose, I wouldn't be. So I can say I am, but I say it because of them. My father, who was Tom Jr., uh, by the way, I'm not a self-existent person, so, right? I have to say that. My father 
who was a junior, so Tom Jr., he could say I am, but he had to say I am because of Tom Sr. and Thelma Rose. And because of them, he could say I am. And we can take that line of thought all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And we look at the very first man and the very first woman. And they were, they existed, but they couldn't say I am. They had to add I am because of Yahweh. You see, they were not self-existent. They had a moment in time when they took their first breath and became a living soul. But Yahweh, God, can say just I am. He doesn't need to add one other word to it. Why? Because we know from the revelation of Scripture that he is the one who was, he is the one who is, and he is the one who is still yet to come. In other words, he is the one who was without beginning, he is the one who was without end, he transcends creation, he transcends time, he is unique alone, all by himself, and he is the source of all things. Continuing with verse 4, we find these words, and from, so this is who this is from, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. By the way, uh, just a little interpretive thing here. Um, uh, In the ESV, the word spirits there is uh, a small case S. In the NASB, which is really a more word-for-word translation, it's a capital S. So I guess the translators of the ESV were like, I'm not quite sure we're talking about deity. And the translators of the NASB said, no, we're talking about deity, okay? So the the question is, who are we talking about, right? Because uh, this is a head scratcher. Uh, And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, uh, who or what are the seven spirits? Well, based upon the context of the statement Uh, I believe it's referring to the Holy Spirit. I believe it is a reference to deity. And of course, we we know that the Holy Spirit is not seven spirits. He is one, one spirit. And so we have to then ask the question, well, why would he be referred to in this way? And I believe that Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 gives us a little help with answering that question. Now, as we come to Isaiah eleven two, I want to just start with verse 1 so that there's a little context to what I'm about to read in verse 2. Uh, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. <laughs> Was that helpful? No, it probably wasn't, okay? Just in and of itself. You'd have to look at it in its bigger context. But let me just tell you this, that what is being spoken of there, this branch uh, from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Uh, the Messiah comes in the line of, of David. And so this is a, a, a reference to the Messiah who, when Isaiah was writing, had not yet come to be in, on the earth and had not yet been identified by name, um, Uh, that's the reference. This is a prophecy about his coming. And so as it relates to the Messiah, verse 2 then, which is going to help us with the question about the seven spirits, uh, says this. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is upon the Messiah, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, when you look at that passage, we have here what has become known as the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit. One Spirit, one Holy Spirit, who is of the Lord and is the source then of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so when we're talking about the seven spirits that are before the throne, in the context of this area, I I believe we have to conclude that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit and that it is a a reference to him that when we look at the broader context of Scripture, we discover that there is a certain fullness uh, about him. Moving on to verse 5. 
it says, and from. So we've got it from the Father, and we've gotten it now from the Son, from the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So uh, just as we have the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit, here in verse 5, we find the threefold fullness of of the Son, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, there in verse 5, it refers to the Son, Jesus, as the faithful witness, prophet. Now, Jesus is more than a prophet, but he was a prophet. And a prophet's job is to communicate and accurately speak the communication of God. And one reference, there are so many, but one reference, John 18, 37, clearly points out to us that that's exactly what Jesus did during his ministry. He was consistently giving us the revelation, the communication, the word of God. And so, prophet. The second word, priest, uh, comes from the firstborn from the dead. A priest is one who represents God to the people and the people back to God. And we know that Jesus did this exact ministry uh, through the blood of his cross and through the resurrection to new life. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, speak of Jesus as the high priest who entered into the heavenly temple securing eternal redemption for those he saves through his own blood. And so we see that Jesus is one who represents the Father to us. He represents us back to the Father. Uh, Jesus uh, is our priest. Now before I move on to the last one, just want to give you a little um, word on the phrase firstborn from the dead, okay? Um, that phrase does not mean to communicate that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead because we know that's not true. Um, G Jesus, during his ministry, raised two or three or four people from the dead. So he raised people from the dead before he died. And uh, I believe in the Old Testament there may have been a, a few uh, who were also raised from the dead. So that's not what it's saying. What it is telling us is that Jesus is the first in preeminence. In other words, Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead to eternal life. No one else had been raised to eternal life. Everyone else who was raised, when Jesus raised Lazarus, Lazarus didn't live forever. Lazarus had to die again. He got a second chance at life, but he had to go through the death thing all over again. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised to eternal life. And so that is what it means by firstborn from the dead, of which, by the way, every believer who dies, we will follow suit with him one day when we are raised to life and we will be raised to life with a new glorified body which will never see death again and we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Okay, good, because I'd hate to have to explain it again. So as I said, the others who were raised, uh, they uh, had to experience death a second time. So they were not the firstborn to live forever. Finally, we come to the idea of king, prophet, priest, king. Well, we see very clearly in verse 5 uh, that he is the ruler of the kings on earth. Uh, scripture is very clear that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so there's several verses uh, I have there in your note guide that you can cross-reference and look at later. So we find then in verse uh, 4 and 5, uh, that, that G, or excuse me, verse 5, that Jesus is more than a humble servant. Uh, he certainly is and was a humble servant, okay? But he's more than that. And truth point number one, I think, helps us to just kind of summarize that. Truth point number one says that Jesus is our prophet. 
How so? He is the Word of God. I mean, He is the revelation of the Word of God. And so, He is our prophet. He is our priest. As the Scripture teaches us, He is our advocate with the Father. There is no other who can advocate for us but Him. And He is our King. He is our ruler. He is our master. He is our protector. And so we find... um, that as John greets the seven churches of Asia in his own name, he also greets them as the one authorized to represent the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's at this point that... um, John uh, turns his attention from the threefold fullness of the Son of God to focus on him in relation to the work and the result of the work of his redemptive ministry. Let's look at the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I just want to stop for a second. That last song that we sang, as I was listening and looking at the lyrics, so many of the things that I'm talking about in this sermon were mentioned in some place in that song, and I just thought that was so exciting. So I'm going to try to bring some of that out for you now. You know, it's only proper when we think of Jesus, we should automatically think of the gospel. And when we think of the gospel, we should automatically think of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the gospel. He is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. A few years ago, uh, we developed here at the TMC uh, a couple of statements, one about the gospel, one about discipleship. Uh, And the um, statement that we developed, it was designed to be uh, an explanation of the gospel in a sentence, okay? And so um, this statement that we uh, came up with actually defines the work and also the result of the gospel. Let's take a look at it. The statement that we came up with says this simply, The gospel is the good news that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God made a way for sins to be forgiven, adoption into his family, and eternal life with him. You know, if you need, if somebody's asking you, what is the gospel? You can go into a four-hour explanation of which they will check out five minutes into it. Or you could start there. This is what it is, right? And the yellow, the words underlined in yellow right? Those are representative of the work. He died for us. He shed his blood for us. He rose from the dead. That's the work, that's the salvific work that Jesus performed. The ones underlined in green are obviously then the results of that work. Because of the cross, because of the resurrection, right? Sins can be forgiven. Because of that, Sinners can be adopted into the family of God. Because of that, we can have eternal life with him forever. And so that's why I say that when we think of Jesus, we need to think of the gospel. When we think of the gospel, we need to think of Jesus. And here in these uh, verses, the last part of verse 5 and verse 6, we have the gospel literally just spelled out for us. Let's take a look. It all begins with love. Romans 5, 8 says that God shows or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of the love of God the Father and the Son, Jesus took on flesh. And in his flesh, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And in so doing, he allowed his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. And when that blood is applied through repentance and faith, we are then set free from our enslavement to sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 7. 
And in that freedom, Jesus does two very special things with those who receive God's grace. He makes us a kingdom, and he makes us priests. So what about this kingdom and priest? We're kind of familiar with the blood and the love of God and and all that. Not so much familiar, I don't think, with being made a kingdom and priests. And um, I wish I had two hours to preach, then I could read through a whole bunch of scripture, but I don't. Um, So um, I'm just giving you the, the, the basics at this point. Truth point number two and number three will sort this out for us. Truth point number two deals with kingdom. In the biblical sense, kingdom has to do with the rule of Christ over those he saves. He makes us the people whom he rules and reigns over and with, including us as subjects, but also rulers in his kingdom. That is a fascinating thing. I wish I, I mean, that right there is a, a series of sermons, right? We don't like to think of being ruled over as something special, as something good. But when it comes to Christ being our king, being the one who rules over us, that is a good thing. That is an awesome thing. That is the best thing you could ever hope to have. And so he makes us a kingdom in that he brings us in under his rule. And so he rules over us. But the interesting thing is he doesn't just rule over us. He actually allows us to join him in the rule so that we rule with him. And that's talked about in Revelation. And you shall reign and rule with him for a thousand years. Not only does he make us his subjects, but he allows us to become rulers. How does all that work? Ask him. But it's a fact. It's, what, it's, it's our future. It's our destiny. Verse, uh, truth point number three, priests. In this context, context signifies the position and right that we are given through Jesus, our high priest, to have access to the Father himself without any other mediator than Christ. The position and the right. When you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, when your soul is saved and you are redeemed, you immediately receive a position that gives you the right to go directly to God the Father. You don't have to come through me. You don't have to come through a priest. You don't have to come through some other mechanism because you are in Christ and he is your vehicle to the Father. You can go directly to him. You can come and ask me to pray with you about something and that's great, but my prayers are no stronger than yours. And I don't have God's ear any better than you. So the fact that he makes us priests means that he gives us a position that gives us a right to have access to God the Father and Christ is our only mediator and we're in him. Uh, Truth point number three, part two, uh, relating to priests, we each serve and represent him in the work and glory of his kingdom. Yes, we serve. We are servants of the Most High God. But we are also commissioned as servants to represent. We are ambassadors to this world of the good news of Christ, his gospel. This is what is known of in Scripture as the priesthood of the believer. I'm not going to go any further with that at this point. So, as John writes this revelation to the seven churches, ultimately he's writing to the fullness of the body of Christ, who are the church. He does so under the authority of the eternal Father. He does so empowered by the fullness of the Spirit. And he does so to make known the revelation of the fullness of Jesus, who is the Christ, 
who is prophet, priest, and king. Now we come to verse 7, and we go a little deeper in the weeds. (laughs) And I'm asking the Lord to help me. Uh, What we find in verse 7, what John brings to light here in a very high-level summary kind of a way is in no small way the fact and the assurance that Jesus is coming to earth again. So as I begin talking here, that's what we're talking about is his return. I want you to notice there in verse 7 the very first phrase. John writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's an emphatic statement. He is coming. He is. There's no doubt. He is coming. And how is he coming? Well, in part, he's coming with the clouds. As we think about that emphatic he is coming, it should be obvious that John, when he was writing this, was not announcing that Jesus was breaking through the clouds at that very moment. What he was announcing is that Jesus' second advent, his coming again, is not in question. But it is a future fact, something that the Father's sovereignty has made as sure in that moment 2,000 years ago when he wrote this as it will be sure when it's actually taking place. The fact that it is the Father's will for Jesus to come to earth a second time is borne out by three witnesses at least. Jesus himself, two angels who witnessed his ascension, and the Apostle Paul. I want to take us through that and look at it very quickly. First, the testimony of Jesus himself. Luke chapter 26, verses 57 through 64. I'm only going to read 64, but I'll give you a quick summary of those other verses. Uh, Basically, Jesus stated his second coming as a fact when he was on trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the scribes and the elders of Israel. Many false accusations were being hurled at him, and, and, and he refused to answer any of them. He just sat there and took it. And finally, in frustration, the high priest Caiaphas got so upset that he used the name of God and he implored Jesus to confirm whether he was in fact the Christ, the Son of God. And now, Jesus decides to respond. And this is what he said, verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Are you the Christ? Yes, you have said so. But I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man. By the way, Son of Man is a title Jesus used of himself throughout his ministry. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. You can go and read that later. He said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, meaning equality with God. So he's claiming to be God and coming on the clouds of heaven. What did John say? He is coming with the clouds. The two angels, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Jesus was about to ascend. His ministry is over. And he's giving them final instructions. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Those white robes, if we get down and study that, is the proof positive that these weren't real men. These these were brilliant angels. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? Tell me, how did he go into heaven? In the clouds. How is he going to come back from heaven? Mm Mm-hmm. You see a pattern coming here? The testimony of two angels. Then we have the testimony of Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. In this section of uh, Thessalonians, Paul is 
is bringing encouragement to the believers in Thessalonica about their loved ones who had died in the Lord. And he assures them that, uh, that neither those who are alive at the Lord's coming nor those who have died before it, neither are going to miss out on the Lord's coming. I want us to look beginning with verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the, son of the, uh, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Where? In the clouds. That must mean Jesus is there in the clouds. Because we're going to go there to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I like verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those are encouraging words. The promise of the resurrection of those who died in the Lord and the snatching away of the believers who are alive to meet him in the clouds, both of those are part of the events that constitute the second coming of Jesus the Christ. By the way, uh, just as a quick aside, the word rapture is not in the Bible. But in that scripture where it says caught up, the Greek word there means snatched up, like I'm going to snatch you up. And that's where we get the concept of the rapture. So both the resurrection of the saints and the snatching up (laughs) of those who still are alive, these are part of what is the second coming of Christ. I'm going to get down in the weeds with that just a little bit more in a moment. Uh, I want you to continue with me, though, in verse 7. Not only is he coming in the clouds... But it says, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now I'm going to go deeper into this when the time comes. But when I think about the second coming of Christ, I do not see Jesus' second coming as a singular event. Just like his first coming was not a singular event. Jesus' first advent began in the womb of Mary. It did not end until he ascended back to heaven. Everything in between was the first coming of Christ. Jesus' second advent begins when he descends with the clouds. Not all the way to the earth, just to the sky level in the clouds to call his church, both those who have died and those who are living to himself. And his second coming, then, the apex of it, is pictured in Revelation 19 when he comes not in the clouds, but in plain view for all to see, to see him conquer his enemies and to establish his millennial kingdom. So truth point number four sorts this out for us the first phrase of verse 7 represents the single the excuse me the first phrase of verse 7 represents the event that signals the beginning of the second coming the remainder of verse 7 represents the fullness of his second coming at the end of the great tribulation so let me break that down the first phrase of verse 7 finds Jesus coming in the clouds it represents that catching away of his church the rapture first thessalonians 4 17 the second phrase points not to that but to a later fullness of the second coming when he comes in clear view to wipe out his enemies and to begin to establish his kingdom and it's in that Second phrase, and this is, I want you to pay attention to this. I find two groups. Two groups are mentioned in this second phrase as it relates to the end time of the second coming. Uh, both of these groups will witness his coming with their eyes. The rapture is something that nobody sees, it's somewhat secret, I guess. 
Nobody sees that. But the, se- the fullness of it will be seen. And there are two groups explained here who will see it, and they have different reactions, and I want you to see that. The first group is identified as even those who pierced him. And that is a direct reference to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Notice that scripture with me. And I will pour out on the house of David, so we're talking about Israel, Jews, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'm going to pour out on them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me or look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Again, this is referring to Israel. This is referring to Jews who will be alive at that time and will be firsthand witnesses of Jesus in the fullness of his second coming. And it says of them, these are people who make it to the end of the tribulation. These are the ones who see Jesus coming on his white horse with all of his hosts with him. It says of them, that a spirit of grace is going to be poured out on them and pleas for mercy is going to be poured out on them. And because of this, they are going to then see Jesus. They are going to be awakened and they're going to see Jesus as their savior and as their king. And they're going to mourn over their past rejection and they're going to repent and they're going to receive grace. We'll get into that a whole lot more later. This is just the beginning of the topic. The second group is defined or identified as all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Whereas the first group will look on Christ whom they pierced and cry out for mercy The second group referring to the Gentile nations who are left at the end of the tribulation, they will wail on account of him. The word wail there, wailing, uh, is akin to terror. Terror. The Gentile nations who rejected Christ before and throughout the tribulation will be terrified terrified when they come face to face with the one they rejected and so in verse 7 we find the assurance of a second coming of Christ in the clouds as Jesus the angels and Paul proclaimed he will come for his church as he promised to do in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3 and we also find in that verse that he will come to an Israel who will be given a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy and because of that will acknowledge Jesus as the true Messiah and he will also come to the Gentile nations who will respond in terror as they see Jesus the conqueror coming to conquer to vanquish to establish his kingdom of which they, that group, will have no part. And Jesus sums it all up, excuse me, John sums it all up in verse 7 with these words, even so, amen, which means so be it. We come now to the last verse for today, verse 8. And verse 8 shows God the Son saying something that he is entitled to say but of whom we are not accustomed to hearing him say what he says, identifying himself in this particular way. This is what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He identifies himself in three ways here. Truth point number five. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, meaning first and last. Because he is in on the beginning and he's all the way to the end, he possesses all knowledge. 
everything in between. He is omniscient. Jesus is the one who was, who is, and who is to come, meaning this, that he is everywhere present. You go back to the past, he's there. You search in the present, he's there. You go to the future, he's there. He's everywhere present. And that means he is omnipresent. Jesus is the almighty. Not just mighty, but the almighty. Possessor of all power, which makes him omnipotent. Now this here, this truth point, uh, defines the essence of divinity, of the divine nature. And it is something that Jesus possesses fully, as does the Father possess fully, as does the Holy Spirit possess fully. And so pertaining to the things that are written in Revelation, things we're going to yet get to, we ask, how do we know that those things will come to pass? By what authority will they come to pass? By what power will they take place? And the answer comes back resoundingly from the eternal triune God. (laughs) Y'all are quiet. We'll see what that means in a few minutes. You know, there is, wouldn't you agree, a lot to absorb there? I broke a sweat trying to share it with you. But here's the thing. I don't expect you to get it all right now. You've got a whole week to look back, to reflect, to check out cross-references. You've got a whole week to go back and watch this sermon again from our website. Or you can go to the Google or the Spotify or, or the Apple platform and you can hear it, just hear it, not listen, just listen to it again and again and again. Because if you miss something, I can get it again. What did he say? I can't quite remember. It's there. You've got all week to kind of mull on this and chew on this and come back next week for another full meal. So bring your fork and knife. (laughs) But before I close, in all seriousness, I want to draw your attention to an important question. Okay? Every eye up here. Okay? If Jesus were to appear today as he is pictured appearing in Revelation 19.11, what would your reaction be to that? What would your reaction be to that? Having turned from sin to embrace him by faith, would you rejoice with great joy? There he is. He's finally here. This is exciting. Wow, take me up. Let's go. I can't wait to join him in his eternal kingdom. Having rejected him thus far, would you suddenly recognize that he is the Son of God, that he is the one and only Savior? And would you cry out for mercy and receive grace? Or would you be terrified coming face to face with the one you rejected, the one who you continue to reject, And would you wail in fear as he judges the world and all on it who have turned their back on him? You know, in all honesty, we can really only speak to the first one. The other two, how can we possibly know what we would do with that if we were in that boat? But as it relates to the first one, those of us who know Christ, we can can say we would be joyful. We would be excited. We'd be thrilled. As it relates to those other responses, though, I want to say this, that the good news is we are not at the end of the tribulation. It hasn't even started. And we're not expecting Jesus to come on his white horse to conquer yet. At this point in history, Jesus continues to be presented as the suffering servant of salvation, And through his word and through his followers, he continues to call sinners to repent, to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And that makes me ask you, I have to ask you, have you 
turned to him in faith have you repented have you believed have you trusted what about all of those of you who connect with this podcast and those of you who watch the video whether right now or a year down the road where do you stand at this particular point in time the thing that you need to recognize is that we are in a period where God's grace is flowing free to all who will turn to him who will recognize him who will admit their sin confess their sin repent turn their back on their sin and turn to him to embrace him as savior and lord scripture is very clear that everyone who is willing to come to that point they will not be cast aside but they'll be brought into the family of god and that's where we are today but there's coming a time and we're going to be looking at this more and more and more in depth when that same free flow of grace is not going to be as free as it is today. And where do you stand? Perhaps you have questions about that. I would love to have an opportunity to answer those questions. My contact information is on the screen. I'll be at the front here. Beth, I'm going to ask you again. Connie's in the overflow room nursing her foot. So I'm going to ask you to help me with that. One of our elders will be here. We're here to pray with you, to counsel with you, to help in any way that we can. If you don't have time for that, text me call me email me you reach out I'm going to reach back and I guarantee you God will come and meet you where you are father I pray now that you will take these things that have been shared and some of them quite complex and perhaps some people are scratching their heads and others are saying I'm not quite sure and that's fine help each one of us to sort through uh, the information and to come to the conclusions that you lead us to Lord, I pray first and foremost that those who need the redeeming work of Christ will come to the conclusion that they are a sinner, that they are in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. And that even today they would repent of sin and trust in Him for the redemption of their soul and the reality of eternal life. For those of us who know you in that way, there's any number of things that you want to do with this message for us. And so I pray that we'll receive it. And Lord, if we feel the need to dig into it a little further, may we do so and find your word speaking to us, transforming us, drawing us closer to you and driving us literally into the work that you have for us in this, frame, this time frame of life that we may honor you with everything we do and be a benefit to others as we do it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.